Cadence Productions. Before we begin, a warning. This podcast contains descriptions of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. March 2013, Visayas, the Philippines. A message lights up the screen. It's like a beacon. Hello. And then seconds later, would you like a job? The words are almost luminous. They seem to expand into that small space and fill it with new energy. Ruby sits alone in the quiet dark of her two-room home, nestled in the mountains. Her only company, the breeze rustling through the bamboo walls. She's been alone for two years now, since around the time she turned 14. So for Ruby, this message feels like a spark of recognition, of connection. Would you like a job? It isn't just a question, not in Ruby's mind, not after everything that has taken place. No, it's a signpost. It feels, she thinks then, like nothing short of a godsend. In the following weeks, Ruby chats more with the stranger on the other end of the screen. The woman is polite, helpful, friendly even. The job is for a computer shop, she tells Ruby. This is good, Ruby thinks, because she excelled in her computer class at school. This is something she knows she can do. The woman promises her room and board in exchange for her labour. And Ruby, gaining courage, makes her own requests. If possible, she asks, may she work at night so she can have time free to study in the day. The woman agrees. And to prove she means what she says, she transfers some money to Ruby to pay for the fare to take her halfway across the Philippines to the city of Pampanga, where she will begin her new life. Though the plans continue to grow over the next few months, Ruby doesn't tell anyone else about her ongoing conversation. Not her friends, definitely not her siblings. She keeps her excitement and her nerves tightly buckled inside her. She doesn't want anyone to try to talk her out of it, or worse, to reprimand her for it. The fresh scar on her arm reminds her that this is a real possibility. Ruby comes to think of this woman as a friend, as someone who sees her value and potential. When so much has been lost, when so much has been damaged in Ruby's life over the last few years, this woman seems to offer a way out. This, Ruby believes, is her open door, her second chance, the opportunity to leave the mountains of grief, loneliness and pain behind her. But of course, the woman on the other side of the chat box is not who she says she is. She's called Nadine. Nadine and her husband Pedro were pioneers, one might even call them entrepreneurs, of a crime that would later be named OSEC, O-S-E-C, the Online Sexual Exploitation of Children. One of the fastest growing major crimes on our planet today. 
a crime they were slowly but surely pulling Ruby into. With every keystroke, Ruby was unwittingly becoming their next victim. That was actually, um, I could say, the darkest moment of my life, actually. They were padlocked inside the house. I couldn't imagine how a, a girl could live in a place like that. Far in the distance, there's a promise. That is a typical story, that they can think of a time in their life when they could never have imagined getting sexually involved in images of children. They detected that, yeah, a crime is being committed in this place. Uh, there are victims that need to be rescued and perpetrators that need to be brought to justice. From Cadence Productions, this is Finding Ruby, a true story of loss and trauma at the hands of one of the world's fastest growing crimes, but also a story of triumph, of rescue, and resilience. She was shaking, but there's so much conviction, there's so much strength and courage. I was thinking that their lives were ruined, that they were destroyed, but I, I, now I know I was wrong, because <laughs> they've been redeemed. I know that there are kids who are actually waiting for us to rescue them. It empowers me more. This is the story of 16-year-old Ruby, thrown into the fight of her life and of those who have chosen to come alongside her and make it the fight of their lives too. Episode one, The Trick. I grew up being a farmer. I mean, um, my, my parents were both farmers. Farming was the only source of um, living that we had. Ruby's story begins slowly uneventfully. For the first 12 years of her life, the mountains shelter her. Despite the poverty around her, she feels safe. She's the youngest in a long train of siblings. Ten children rise in an ascending line above her, and the gap between her and the eldest is vast. The family has two homes when Ruby is growing up. One in the town where her older siblings live and study and work to help contribute to costs. And one in the country, about an hour and a half's walk away. This is where Ruby lives, shoulder to shoulder with her parents. The two-room country house is small and simple, built with her father's hands. The walls are bamboo and the roof is thatched but it is cool with the breeze and warm with the presence of her parents. It is home. She loves the rich green all around her and the sound the birds make all day long, always with something to say. It is a half hour walk to the small mountain school. Ruby discovers here that she loves learning. Not only this, but she's good at it. My teachers uh, sent me um, actually to some spelling bee contest, so I got to be with other kids from other school. Slowly or little by little, um, you know, I learned to uh, socialize with other people. That's when I started to actually um, to be more playful and more outgoing. 
The pattern of Ruby's life is a steady, peaceful one. In the mornings, her parents wake early and make coffee together before they head out to the farm. Work is hard for them. Ruby knows this. There were days that they would bring me to, to the farm, but they wouldn't actually allow me to do the farming job because I was too young for that. But I was actually exposed to the things that they do, how hard it is to put food on our table. Ruby is close to her father. He is gentle with her and they share a close bond. My father loved me so much that, you know, I didn't even um, have a memory of him even raising his voice. I don't have a memory of him um, being mad towards me. Farm life, by its very nature, affords unexpected moments of lightness. One day, as they are walking home, they come across a very steep hill that they need to walk down. Ruby asks her father for a piggyback ride. Eager to help his daughter, he kneels down so she can better reach his back. But he forgets one thing. He is still wearing his bolo knife, a large farming tool. It looks like a machete. He's wearing it around his waist. As he bends down, the knife pushes into the ground. Before he realises it, he's overbalanced and he starts to tumble. My father rolled down, um, down the hill and instead of helping him, I laughed so very loud and ran after him. And um, I didn't even realise that it was like, it was dangerous for my father. I just, at that moment, I just saw the funny side of my father. Um, I just ran after him and that, that made our way uh, home even faster. <laughs> During this time in her life, Ruby dreams often of what she will be when she is older. Since I was a dreamer, I really had a lot of um, uh, who I want to be when I was a young girl or a, yeah. while growing up. So there was a time that I wanted to be a nurse because I wanted to take care of uh, sick people. Hmm. There were times that I also wanted to be a police woman. Um, there were also times that, times that I want to be a teacher. So I had a lot of um, things that I really wanted to do when I was growing up. Lying beside her mother and father together in the one room, in the warmth of the small home, Ruby's big dreams seem not only possible, but as far as she can see, entirely achievable. But of course, Ruby could not have seen or imagined what was coming next. I was recently camping with my family at one of those campgrounds where there's a ton of activities for children. One of those activities was a jumping pillow. This might be an Australian thing. It's basically a giant jumping castle the size of, say, half a basketball court, but with no walls. It's surrounded by sand. It's a little dangerous, but a lot of fun for the kids. Anyway, I was standing there watching on, wishing I was a kid, when I got talking to another dad. We ended up having a great conversation, chatting for a long time about all manner of things. 
Then I started talking about how I was working on this podcast. I told him how it was a passion project of the creative agency that I help run, Cadence, and how one of our clients, International Justice Mission, or IJM as they're known, had given me a backstage pass of sorts to tell the story. He asked me about IJM, and I got to chat about their work, how they're a global organisation dedicated to protecting the world's most vulnerable from violence and exploitation. I told him some of the details of Ruby's story, and how I had travelled to the Philippines to retrace her steps, and in the process met undercover investigators, police officers, lawyers and social workers. Again, he seemed really interested. The conversation was going really well. Until, that is, I told him what OSEC was. He put his hands up in the air, shook his head, literally turned away and said, Oh, that's too heavy for me, mate. I don't want to think about anything like that. So, we moved on. But I've thought about that moment a lot since. Perhaps as you listen, you've already heard of this four-letter acronym. Perhaps you've read of it or caught word of its horror. But perhaps this term is relatively new for you, like it was for some of us when we started exploring it. You might have the same initial reaction as that dad by the jumping pillow. It might feel like something simply too dark for you to put your mind to, and you'd rather not. I think that's a really natural reaction, and it's totally understandable. But what does that reaction, multiplied by millions of people, mean? In some ways, we're not just turning away from the topic of OSEC, we're actually turning away from those caught up in it. We're leaving them to solve this problem. But they're kids. On the flip side, when we turn into it, when we start paying attention, change can happen. How do I know this? Because that's exactly what happened back in 1833 when slavery was officially abolished in the UK. It didn't start with an act of parliament. It started with the people becoming aware of what was actually happening. Here's Jim Martin, a 15-year veteran with International Justice Mission. One of the key things that helped that happen, one of, one of the sort of keystones of that whole process, um, was this lithograph that was created of the map of a slave ship, um, of the hold of a slave ship, that laid out what it actually looked like for these human beings to be packed in like cargo and for you know, six weeks or two months carried across the middle passage at the cost of 40% of their lives often, right? So people were confronted with this actual image that they probably couldn't get out of their heads and some of them probably regretted seeing actually, right? Because they couldn't get it out of their heads. But this is actually um, one of the important steps to awareness raising because like an idea is one thing, but an idea that, that that brings with it some emotional cargo of empathy is actually where change begins to happen, right? Where, where reality becomes unacceptable. The thing is, one of the reasons OSEC has grown so much is because of its mostly hidden nature. Rather than traditional trafficking, OSEC takes place in private spaces. 
homes, computers, and yes, in easily pocketable devices like phones. The crime of OSEC is flourishing in the darkness. And perhaps you, by listening now, can play even a small part in bringing light into it. What's the old saying? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. I have spent countless hours talking with Ruby and her social worker. For Ruby, now in her mid-twenties, there is power and healing in speaking up and telling her story, bringing it into the light. Before, I'm so shy and afraid to face people. But then, when I realized that this is not something that I should hide from people, so that other victims or more victims could be prevented, When I started on the journey of this podcast, I honestly had no idea it would go where it has. It turns out that this story is packed full of twists and turns, moments of incredible bravery and triumph, of grit and determination in the pursuit of justice. We've shaped this story into a six-part series that I hope you're going to love. And just a little note here, the story is also packed full of highly sensitive information. Criminals and victims, investigators and informants. Because of this, we've had to change the names of a lot of the people featured in this story, including Ruby's. But Ruby is a name she gave herself after coming through this ordeal, after surviving OSEC. In the most basic sense, OSEC is a very modern form of human trafficking. It involves the live-streamed, directed abuse of children. Men from countries like the UK, USA, Canada, Europe, and I'm ashamed to say Australia, pay to see children, boys and girls, sexually abused in real time, all from the comfort of their home. Yeah, I mean, just the reality is that you have, you know, millions of, uh, of individuals, you know, primarily men in our world who want to see children being sexually abused. They want to direct it, you know, in real time using technology. That's John Tanago, Executive Director of the Centre to End Online Sexual Exploitation of Children, established in 2020. And because the the demand side offenders are paying for it. Um, And on the other side, in places like the Philippines, you have individuals who are willing to exploit children for profit to make money. Then, you know, that's why you have online sexual exploitation of children. As I said, it's a really modern form of human trafficking. Now, if you're like me, when you think of fighting back against human trafficking, you might think of this. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. 
and I will kill you. It's quite something to watch Liam Neeson systematically and quickly take down a human trafficking syndicate in the movie Taken. If only it were that straightforward. OSEC is stealthy. It takes time, energy, and expertise to seek it out and expose it. Um, you've seen improvements, significant improvements in, in combating that crime, but still it's a lot easier to get away with, you know, because it's online. Offenders can use anonymous, you know, uh, identifying information on social media platforms. They can use, um, you know, uh, encrypted platforms. And so notwithstanding the best efforts of the government, it's just a hard crime to, uh, to detect and report quickly. Unlike traditional trafficking, customers no longer need to physically walk into a brothel. Just a swipe of the screen brings it to the couch or the bedroom. It is almost, one could imagine, like it isn't even happening in the real world. Except it really is. I am angry. An image is not just an image. There's a child, a real child in that image. And in Manila, I was given the opportunity to sit down and chat with Police Colonel Sheila Patento, former chief of the Women and Children Protection Center's Anti-Trafficking in Persons Division. Colonel Sheila is tough. She has hunted down and put behind bars hundreds of perpetrators of this crime. And despite doing this day in and day out, the reality of this quote-unquote virtual crime still deeply impacts her. Actually, I don't have the, <clears throat> I, I usually don't watch the images or the videos because um, I cannot actually comprehend how a sane human being can actually um, satisfy himself with a child or a life being destroyed. It is just so inhuman. It's important to state that this is not happening only on the dark web. Most of it is happening on the social platforms that we use every day. Another disturbing difference to traditional trafficking that we need to mention up front is that OSEC is what they call a preferential crime. What that means is that rather than arriving at a location, like say a brothel or a bar, and taking what they are offered, customers are given choice in who they want to abuse and what they want to do. They essentially become directors of their own perversion in the form of shows. Uh, in more traditional child sex trafficking, the victims tend to be a little bit older. Uh, in OSEC, I mean, nearly half of the victims are under the age of 12. That's Caleb Carroll, Director of National Investigations and Law Enforcement Development for IJM Philippines. OSEC, they're extremely preferential. They, they will order and look for the kind of um, child, the kind of abuse, um, and custom order it to their preference and liking as a sexually motivated offender. That Facebook message, would you like a job, the message that would go on to completely upend Ruby's life, came in 2013, when the crime of OSEC was in its infancy. 
Primarily for that reason, Ruby's story is not a typical example of this crime. It's a blend of both traditional trafficking and OSEC. More on this in a future episode. Let's return now to Ruby's story, before that message arrived, and the moment where everything started to change. October 2008, Visayas, the Philippines. The unraveling of Ruby's life begins with a shout. It is Ruby's brother. Something has gone wrong with her father. At first, Ruby is confused. It's only when she sees it for herself that she understands the reason for the terror in her older brother's voice. I saw my father um, riding a motorcycle, but he looked like he was lifeless already. He's not moving. It's his his eyes were closed and then um, the motorcycle actually uh, stopped in front of our house and then I saw my father in that state and then my brother uh, yelled at my mother that uh, my father had a stroke. Ruby's mother panics. Her eyes are wide with fright and her movements are agitated. Ruby has never seen her like this before. Ruby's brother says they must go to the hospital, now. Ruby begs to go with them. She wants to be there, by her father's side, but her mother tells her she cannot. They don't have the money to pay for transport for them all to go. Stay in the house, she tells Ruby. Wait. It is only 10 a.m. and Ruby doesn't know what to do. Early in the afternoon, she lies down at last and succumbs to sleep. It was like around one to in the afternoon when one of my sisters were like gently shaking me and I heard them crying. Ruby takes a moment to come to, to reorient herself. She cannot take in what her sister is saying. She seems to be telling her that her father has gone, but the words do not register. They do not make sense. Ruby asks again, what happened? At last, her siblings bring Ruby to the hospital, but she cries only because they are crying, not because she has found her own tears yet. In the hospital, she spots her father. He is covered from head to toe in a white sheet. She runs toward him and instantly embraces him. He was still warm when I was embracing him, so I thought he was still alive. It's just that he's sick. But when the um, but when the funeral people arrived to get his you know dead body, that's when I realized that he's dead already. And that's that's when I started crying. And that's when the river of sorrow begins. Other than Ruby, her father's sudden death is hardest of all on her mother. She does not forget about her husband, not in her mind, not in her body either. She longs for him. Four months after her father leaves them, grief finds physical expression in her mother's body. She becomes very sick. She is diagnosed with diabetes and hypertension. And soon after that, she is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The doctor gives her less than a year to live. 
At just 13 years old, Ruby becomes her mother's nurse. While her siblings work to provide for them and the continual weight of new medical expenses, Ruby cares for her mother in hospital as she undergoes treatment and surgery. As long as she is at the hospital, Ruby cannot attend school. In her absence, her grades, once so good, begin to slip. It is a little like falling down the side of a mountain. When her mother dies, Ruby does not know where to go next. She has many siblings to stay with, but by now they have their own families, their own lives, their own burdens. She does not want to intrude, to be yet another weight on their shoulders. She feels too lost to fit in. So she returns to the only place she's ever felt safe, to the house in the country, a one and a half hour walk from the town. But this time, she returns alone. Actually, it was very lonely, um, Rich. Mm. And at that point of time, future was blank for me. Mm. It's like a blank space because I don't know where to um, have the strength. I mean, I lost all of my inspiration because I was wanting to. I was wanting to have a successful future because of my parents, but I lost them. So future was like a blank space for me. I don't know what to do anymore. I don't have this desire to even, it's just like, I just existed, but I don't know uh, what for. I don't know what's my purpose. One of Ruby's eldest sisters visits weekly to check in on her. Initially, Ruby is grateful for the support, but one day the atmosphere shifts. When she enters the house, Ruby's sister does not look pleased. Something has happened. No, rather something has been said. There are rumours being passed around, rumours about Ruby, about her behaviour. Ruby tells her sister that the rumours have no substance, they are just smoke, but her sisters don't believe her. Without warning, her sister grabs an electric cable and she swings it like a whip and it makes contact with Ruby's flesh. Aside from physically hurt, I was also hurt by that fact that they um, trust other people than me. So um, that's how I started to um, have this hatred towards them. This type of violent discipline would become a new pattern in Ruby's life. Her sisters have taken on the role of raising her, and they feel that this is the best way to do it. For me, it's it's very um, harsh of them and very nonsense. You know, when um, when when she beats me up, I actually don't cry, um, even if I'm physically hurt. It's really hard for my tears to come out of my eyes. But deep inside, you know, my anger would pile up. Yeah, and when I'm alone, that's when I really cried a lot. 
For two years, Ruby lives like this, alone. Piece by piece, the layers of protection around her had been pulled away. Sickness and death, poverty and calamity had left her standing exposed and vulnerable. It was into this space that the message arrived on Facebook Messenger. When that person started talk, started talking to me in Facebook, it's like um, an answered prayer for me, if I would say. You know, I was praying for uh, a chance or a way to leave um, the province or our house. So I entertained her and I saw her as my um, escape route. And I didn't have anyone to talk uh, with about it. So I kept it by myself because I was actually afraid that um, they would tell my plan to, plans to my siblings and I will be beaten again. The woman on the other end tells her exactly what to do and where to go to reach her destination. And so Ruby steps boldly forward into her future, believing it can't possibly be any worse than her past. Shortly after graduation, Ruby leaves the shelter of the mountains behind her and begins the two and a half day journey to Pampanga. She's just 16 years old with no one to accompany her. So she has a lot of time to think while the bus rumbles over the uneven streets, she wonders what it will be like at her new job. What she will do, where she will sleep. But she thinks too of her family at home. I was also very worried that my um, siblings will be, or how my siblings will react with that after uh, they'll find out. I was, I was crying the whole time and I was just, you know, um, comforting myself with the fact that I won't be with my siblings any, anymore and they won't be able to hurt me any longer. The bus and then the ship push her onward. When Ruby finally arrives at the depot in Pampanga after her long trip, she is beyond tired. Rather than the lady, there is an unfamiliar man there to meet her. He was quiet, so it was very awkward for me to talk to him, um, you know, first because he was very quiet and I didn't know him. He just told me that um, in the terminal, he just asked me, are you Ruby? And then I said, yes. Oh, so uh, this person sent me to pick you up. And actually, the girl that I was talking um, in Messenger already told me that there will be a person who will pick me up from the uh, terminal. So I went with that guy. The two drive in awkward silence for 45 minutes through a crisscross of unfamiliar streets. Ruby does not recognize anything, nor does she think it's possible to remember the way they have taken. It's a maze 
Rather than the mountain she is familiar with, this city is an entirely different place. Noisy, busy. Even the sky looks different. Closer, less clear. She is painfully aware that she knows not a soul here. The silent stranger is her one and only link to, well, anything. When they arrive, the woman is still nowhere to be seen. The house is plain and large from the outside. There is no greenery around it, no glimpses of life. You will meet your boss tomorrow, the man tells her. So it is best if you get some sleep now. He says it more like a command, stern and final than a suggestion. They step out of the car and move toward the front door together. There is a padlock on the door that he pauses to open. Ruby enters after the man and steps into a hallway. She watches as several young women and a young girl of around eight or nine years old emerge from a side room, partially naked. Where are their clothes, she thinks. Why are they half undressed? The house is dark and has a strange musty smell and she does not know yet where she will sleep or what she will eat. But suddenly, none of this matters. In an instant, Ruby is no longer lost. She knows exactly where she is. Oh my goodness. For me, it was like, what? You know, it was like a bomb exploding my head. I was tricked. On the next episode of Finding Ruby. She actually looked like she would kill me anytime. She doesn't care at all. If I get killed there, no one would really know. Finding Ruby is a project of Cadence, a creative agency for good in Sydney, Australia. This podcast is written and edited by Nikki Florence Thompson and me, Rich Thompson. Sound design and mix by me and Brendan Ridley. The show website, where you can dive in deeper into each episode, can be found at findingruby.com. Our theme song is Homeland by Searching for Light. A special thanks to Lydia Bowden, Evelyn Pingle, Meryl Sarko, Lani Alano and all the team at IJM Philippines for opening the doors to us. And of course, a big thanks to Ruby for telling her story. And finally, a big thanks to you for choosing to come on this journey with us. We'd be really grateful if you would take a moment to rate and review the podcast so that other people can find it too. We'll see you on the next episode.